Hello and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David J.H. Wu, and today I interview Dr. Derek Paul, co-founder and CEO of Flask Health, a platform for AI-assisted diagnosis and decision-making. He is trained at the UCSF School of Medicine and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Before we begin, a brief word of caution for any listeners who are in medical school. This is a dangerous interview. It might inspire you to pursue a dream that you have and possibly even interrupt or delay your training. All jokes aside, though, Dr. Derek Paul is a truly inspirational guy. He started this company during his MS4 intern years, and in this episode, we'll learn about his journey in building Glass Health to the awesome tool that it is today. It's possible you may have used it before, but if not, I highly recommend it. Enjoy the episode, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Mammal Podcast and join our Discord community. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Mammal Podcast. My guest today is Derek Paul, the co-founder and CEO of Glass Health, a platform for AI-assisted diagnosis and decision-making. He's trained at the UCSF School of Medicine and Brigham, Woman, Brigham and Women's Hospital. So my first question for you, Derek, is a question that we ask all listeners. It is, can you tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Hi, David. It's a big pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I would be so happy to tell you about that. Um, you know, you mentioned that I went to medical school and I was actually an intern at, at, at the Brigham when class raised our first round of investment and ended up, uh, taking leave from my residency and going full time. But for me, the story actually starts much, much earlier. Um, I went to college as a music major. I thought I was going to be a wow. film composer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Did not think I'd be here having this conversation with you. Um, so really as I went to school as a creative, it wasn't even sure I was going to do a four-year college degree, um, but got interested in medicine through seeing some of the disparities that were around me during college, health disparities, but also seeing family members go through healthcare journeys and crises. And so got involved in some volunteering and kind of came over, was like one of those non-traditional candidates. Um, and so did my post back at Hopkins. And that was where I had some professors who were inventors of medical devices and were in the drug discovery space. So I actually had professors during my post back who who had started their own companies. And that was the first time I ever thought wow. about sort of a technology venture as another way to have impact outside of research and QI and all the rest that we do. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I actually tried to start a company as a pre-med. Uh, so before I even went to medical school, I tried to start a company. It didn't go so well. Uh, obviously. What was it called or what was it about? Well, I'll tell you, it was at the time it was the idea was that it was a brain and a computer interface company. And Whoa. it actually was with some data scientists who were winning, um, who were winning Kaggle, which is this big sort of yeah. open source data science competition, winning Kaggle competitions for EEG classification, uh, EEG signaling classification. And so we were talking about building a company that's similar to, you might be, uh, familiar with the Neuralink. Uh, yep, it, yep. We had we had basically a business plan for something like that uh, when I was a, a pre-med or, or a post-bec at Hopkins. 
And the wow. interesting thing was that company got, it, you know, it got a YSC interview. We had raised a little bit of money, but that kind of deep tech uh, company that doesn't have a market for long, long periods of time requires enormous amounts of capital and for you to go long periods of time without making any money. So various mm. different pieces of things. They also require you to build these big scientific organizations. Uh, so that's sort of a startup on ultra hard mode that to build yeah. that kind of company. Um, <laughs> it's not great for first time entrepreneurship uh, where what you need to do is quickly get a product out to market and prove that uh, people love it so you can raise subsequent rounds of capital. Um, that's a that I think there's a good reason why the folks who are in that space are are second and third time entrepreneurs who can raise large amounts of capital and do very risky, uh, yeah, so like do, Elon Musk, right? Like Elon Musk can do, can do that kind <laughs> of risky startup. A pre med at uh, is is not the best person for that. So who's never done a company before? So that didn't work <laughs> out. Uh, I went to medical school at UCSF, actually wanting to be where there was a lot of technology innovation. I know you're from the Bay Area. Uh, Are you from the Bay Area originally? Or? I, I'm not from the Bay Area. I kind of made that decision at the medical school level because I wanted to be where there was a lot of innovation. Uh, um, and then actually left UCSF for a period of time to work on the company that I told you about and also um, worked briefly as a chief of staff at an AI drug discovery company. Uh, Whoa. So I and during med school. During med school. Now How? I know I, I actually took leave from med school to okay. do this. So it took me a total of five five or so years to finish med school. Um don't be like me. It's yeah. <laughs> to our listeners. <laughs> just yeah. finish. Just this is finish a dangerous interview. <laughs> just finish your stuff. But I was we popping, have a lot of med student listeners. So yeah, I, is... I'm sure you do. I was popping in and out of training trying to do this stuff. And um, I met my co-founder, Graham Ramsey, when I was a third year medical student. He built a telemedicine EHR at Plush Care, which was acquired by Accolade. And then built the fertility hormone tracking dashboard at Modern Fertility, which was acquired by Roe. And Graham and I were talking about, we just had this feeling that technology should be fully optimized for the practice of medicine before we like do crypto and build rockets and stuff. We were like, this is really, <laughs> like healthcare is really important. Medicine is really important. Yeah. We need to be, and it just didn't seem like that was the case. When I was in my rotations, it felt like a lot of the software doctors were working with was 10 years behind the consumer software or other enterprise grade software. And so we just started trying to understand why that was, why it was so difficult to build for doctors and so difficult to innovate in healthcare. Uh, during It was during the pandemic in 2021 that we got conviction that we would build Glass, a company that was dedicated to trying to empower clinicians with the new generation of software. Uh, we started building the company through my last year of med school and into my first year of internal medicine residency. Oh my goodness. I was working every single minute of my life. And uh, and, and Graham was uh, working every single minute of his life too, but he actually was working for Glass full time. Um, and we didn't have any money. That was the funniest part. Whoa. Uh, we didn't have any funding in the early days. Uh, so I was, in, I was an intern. He, he was sort of, uh, living off of his savings and we're trying to make this company work. 
Uh, we're both just getting beat up. Uh, and what we what we created. You were doing this during intern year. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because that's already like more than a full time job, right? Eighty hours a week, man. Uh, I, it's, it wasn't really eighty. I I would say that we did about seventy. I think we probably oh did seventy hours a week. Well, I mean, you know, you're an intern. You're like learning. Cause I'm starting my intern year like next week, so yeah. I just can't even imagine, you know, starting a company at the same time. How did you do it? You know, I think really when we we came to the decision to start Glass at the height of the pandemic, and it really came from a place of so much love and compassion for our fellow uh-huh. clinicians and seeing how bad the documentation burden and burnout was. Um, I, you know, have loved ones who are in medicine um, and you see what a difficult path this is and how badly we need change in our field. And so I think that that conviction is what let us do some of those really hard things. And we believed in ourselves that we could do it. What ended up happening during that year was that we launched a version of Glass that was originally called Glass Notebook. And it, the idea with Glass Notebook was kind of an Evernote or a notion for doctors. It was mm-hmm. an external brain for your whole career. You could keep your schemas and approaches to different problems there. You could keep your scripts, your evidence-based treatments, your dot phrases. You could bring in the tutorials you saw, uh, your morning report slides, your noon conference slides. You read some literature here. And the idea is you had this external brain that you would keep with you through your whole uh, clinical medicine career that you could use to take great care of patients. And it really was uh, really popular um, pretty quickly. And that was really exciting. We had so many doctors coming to us from uh, Microsoft OneNote, Evernote, Notion, Notability. They were Google Drive. They were trying to do this in other places and they found that their their medical knowledge was fragmented. And now here is this company that knew them and was building for their use case. And so started to get traction there. And off of that alone, we got scouted to uh, for investment and we raised a pre-seed round um, during uh, during my intern year. Uh, wow. And uh, yeah, just about like a little more than halfway through. I think it was like... Uh, well, further than that, it was towards the end of the year. So it may have been like May, June. Um, and then uh, ended up getting to Y Combinator with that uh, that concept. And then, of course, since then, we've made a pivot into the AI space in a very hard way um, and subsequently raised another round, which the amount is not public yet, but we'll be disclosing that soon. It's going to be really exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. That's a which... Uh... Why Combinator batch did you do? We were winter 23, which actually I think is a... Oh, wow. Uh, it, you know, we're just, we just came out of it. So and you just finished it. Just finished. And it was just a totally insane time to be in Y yeah. Combinator because you can imagine we got in in October and then ChatGPT launched in November. So yeah. you're sort of living through a gigantic technology inflection point, which feels as big as mobile and the app store or as yep. big as um the internet like, sort of years or as big as the computer years you're going 
whoa, this is another big platform moment where companies that can can be built that couldn't be built yesterday. Um, and that uh, that has enormous implications for for our society. And, you know, Microsoft is making these big moves. Google is making these big moves. Uh, it, it, it was a, just a, a tumultuous, but incredibly exciting time. And then, then you have a bank crisis that comes on top of it. It, <laughs> it, it was just a, it, hopefully you guys weren't with SVB, right? <laughs> we were not. We were not. Um, That's good. Uh, but uh, we certainly had had colleagues who were affected by that, and of course, all of Y Combinator was sort of affected by that. The entire what ends up happening is the entire venture ecosystem is affected, and and everyone, whether you have money in SVB or not the way that your fundraising and the dynamics of your rounds and those things change um, when these sorts of things happen. So it was a really intense time to be in Y Combinator, but it's a wonderful program. I really recommend it to everyone. That's, I feel like that's a really historic batch, you know, coming so. with, yeah, with like generative AI, large language models. Um, Cause I, you know, I've seen on like the Twitter space, everyone's talking about how there were so many companies in that batch that were doing AI related work. And um, to do that work at the same time that all of these massive breakthroughs are coming out must have been, uh, were you ever like afraid or did you feel like fear or like doubt during this process? I think, yes, yes, of course. I think um, whenever you're on the, frontier or the edge of what can be done um it is you know there's a lot of uncertainty and unknown in our situation and this kind of comes to sort of to part of your first question about like uh, glasses and ai company i didn't talk too much about glasses and ai company what we realized through building the notebook was that most of our users wanted to do two things one they wanted to be clinically excellent <laughs> uh, which meant good diagnostic accuracy and deploying good evidence-based treatments to have good patient outcomes. And the other thing is they want it to be efficient with documentation because everybody yeah. wants to go home, right? Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. So this, this, this became very clear early that like the key things, the heart of medicine for our users was clinical excellence and efficient documentation. So, and so what we really ended up realizing was that large language models were some of the large language model based products and that's different mm -hmm. than just large language models alone i'll say large language model based products yeah were key to being able to achieve that those some of those things um and, and so what we do now is we build large like large language model based products that assist clinicians with diagnosis with creating differential mm -hmm. diagnosis that draft clinical plans uh, and later on, I think are going to be able to knock out progress notes and discharge summaries and hospital courses and things like that. It's going to get very exciting. Yeah, I've tried it actually. It was, I was very impressed. Oh, very, good. very magical, magical product. And for for our listeners, I recommend you all to open up a, a an account and try out the free. There's like a free tier or something. But um, it was I was really impressed with how you know the the outputs of the model and how um. You know, it's it was very. I I feel like I could use this during my intern year. That's the hope. I think what you're describing, that feeling of of oh, this was magical. I think is exactly what we want to go for. And right now, I would say we're very early in this process. Um, we've only trained 
uh, in, it, we go topic by topic where there's a team of clinicians training. Uh, and I, I say training in quote, in quotes, because these can mean different things in sort of a technical, a technical way when we talk about the AI, but I think for the folks in medicine, I say train meaning like we got our clinical AI to give good clinical, clinically excellent outputs. Uh, we go topic by topic for that. Um, and it's a team of, uh, clinicians and clinicians in training who, um, who work on each topic. And what we're able to do is really achieve a clinical plan, I think, that looks like a academic clinician wrote it. And that should yeah. be that that that's what we're working on. And um, we take the responsibility as we start to do this and build out that library. I think our responsibility is something like what up to date's responsibility or dynamat. It's almost a new clinical yeah. reference company, right? Except for the way you interface with clinical reference is not wow. through uh, traditional search it is through uh, th through artificial intelligence and uh, and specifically large uh, natural language processing. So the the and and I think you know the transformation that's happening. You know Google knows this with Bard. Microsoft knows this through their their relationship with OpenAI and the integrations with Bing. Is that it? It doesn't make sense anymore to use traditional Google search to plan your vacation. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is tell that AI assistant help me plan a vacation to Hawaii from this date to this date that costs under this amount and to have it traverse the information for you and start to yeah. put those things together. And when you apply that in the medicine context, you can imagine traversing clinical knowledge databases differently. And then what's the next step? Actually drafting the documentation. Yeah. Right. And that's where we went. We said, let's just go straight for that. On the differential diagnosis side, we realized that what are clinicians trying to do throughout their life, going to morning report and going to noon conference and doing all this training time? We're trying to train our own neural networks for pattern recognition. That's true. We're trying yeah. to train our own neural networks for pattern recognition. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. But but the AI, we can do that endlessly, right? Yeah. We can we can we can um we can sort of train it endlessly for pattern recognition. And additionally at Glass, we we've sort of actually have different experimental um ways of doing diagnosis that are in development right now but um there there are different ways you can you can sharpen a, even a foundational model a base model's ability to do diagnosis and we're exploring these really aggressively but i think that large language models and specifically clinically you know clinical ai is going to do differential diagnosis off of text the way ai plays chess oh yeah like, it's going to be incredibly good. It's going to be very hard uh, to beat it with your own memory, um, mm -hmm. because it, it if it has access to the right information and sort of the right compute and the right context and all the rest, that these things can be very very good. Yeah, it's like standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, of decades of published peer reviewed uh, articles and yeah, wow. That is that is really cool. I'm curious though, because I know it started out originally as the glass notebook. Uh, what was was there a moment where you decided, oh, let's start to implement AI? Like, was there like a big pivot point, or was it more of an organic process where, you know, there's this new exciting technology and let's kind of, you know, start experimenting with it? I think that I, I the way that I 
generally think about these things as what problem are you trying to solve and then what uh -huh. is the right technology uh, what are the right uh -huh. sort of product solutions and then sort of what's required um of those products uh, uh from a technology standpoint and then you can get it to what tools should you use and which models should you use in the uh, so, yeah, so, yeah. So there's sort of like a hierarchy to how you approach these and yeah for us when we've flip from the notebook to an AI focus, although the notebook is still really important. Um, and we can, I'd be happy to talk more about why I think- I feel like they're hand in hand, right? Almost. They're, hand, they're hand in hand because there's still, no matter what, policy changes slowly, um, uh, education policy changes slowly. The clinician still needs to know quite a bit, both to operate the AI, pass licensure, like get board yeah. certified, all these various things. So. So personal knowledge management as a physician is not going anywhere anytime soon. The notebook is really important. Yeah. It, it it's actually, almost like training your own private, you know, LLM slash neural network. You know what I mean? It's like it your is, own training data. It is your own training data. So exactly what you're describing, right? If you think about it, the way that we were able to come to Glass AI is Glass AI is almost the inverse of the notebook. We're almost giving a foundation model its own notebook to mm. go and do some of the stuff that clinicians were doing. So the glass notebook and the AI are almost inverse mirror inverses wow, of each other. Wow, that's pretty, it's like yin, yin and yang. Exactly, and I think what happens sometime in the future, which I certainly this is not something that I think we can promise or is like on the roadmap, but it certainly come up is when you start to think about how will clinicians personalize their AI outputs, right? Mm. How will you get personalized AI outputs? How will it create a note in your style or use your resources or use your institution's yeah. resources, Yeah. right? Um, I think that having databases like a glass notebook will probably be some of the key, uh, sort, of, sort of the key way that some of this personalization of AI happens. That's the future because that's actually, those are really complicated uh, mm -hmm. products to build. And I think we're, very early at the, we're like a couple of months into this, yeah. uh, uh, into this sort of like a large language model revolution, but you, you can imagine that some of those things are possible. So the notebook and the AI applications will, will sort of exist in parallel and potentially converge someplace down the line. But we sort of see them as our clinicians trying to solve the same problems, but leveraging different tools to do that. Uh -huh. Yeah, that what you described then, it's almost like the, the mountains beyond the mountains, you know, of kind of having that, um, maybe that one day where that converges, like the, the class notebook, class AI, and then, I don't know, ha having like a notebook that is improved based on AI and kind of will generate personalized output for you. Yeah. That. I, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about glass AI and maybe tell us a little bit about what's under the hood. Um, I know on the website you do talk about um, RLHF, which is, uh, I think it's reinforcement learning human feedback. Is that the right? Using that with like physicians maybe, or um, yeah, like, could you kind of tell us a little bit about, maybe a little bit about the secret sauce? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, what I would say here is, so, so I, I was talking to you a little bit about like that hierarchy of thinking about how to approach these things. So like first you think about what the problem is. And in this case, we talked about diagnostic accuracy, mm -hmm. deploying evidence-based treatment plans, completing documentation. Uh, well, and then you go, well, actually, you know, a clinical AI that 
produce clinically excellent differential diagnosis or produce clinically excellent documentation that incorporated evidence-based treatment plans, that would be a good solution for those problems. You could cut down, you know, spending 30 to 40 minutes uh, researching up to date while admitting a DKA patient into a 30 to 40 second AI output. That's a big deal. And if it's accurate and it's correct, then you've really achieved a big delta in time. And then you multiply yeah. that over all the time that clinicians spend. That's a, you know, there's a huge, tremendous amount of value that's been been there. Um, so, you know, so once you come to, you need to have great clinical AI, then you ask yourself the question of, well, how do we achieve great clinical AI outputs? So I think a lot of folks have approached this in different ways, right? There, and, and I think over the coming years, you will see a lot of AI companies approach good clinical AI, clinically excellent AI outputs in different ways. Some folks are training on EHR data. Some folks are, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe maybe thinking about this. In, it, maybe they're training cases on, on cases or vignettes. Maybe some people are training on, on, on documentation and notes. There's, there's various approaches to this. And um, this clinical AI has, has been in labs at Stanford and other places for years. Folks have worked on it. I think what's really special about this moment is that we have these foundational models from Google and Anthropic and and, uh, uh, and, and OpenAI. Um, the large language models that have been trained on petabytes of internet, they have emergent logic and reasoning abilities yeah. and yeah. language abilities. That's the magic. I, I think that's the magic of this moment. This moment is not, let's all focus on AI because we weren't focused on it before. It's that if you get sort of the resources and compute together to build these large foundational models, you have these emergent abilities that then lets you uh. go and build products on top of it. So I really think this is a moment, like I was saying, similar to um, the arrival of the App Store or the arrival of the Internet. It's a platform yeah. moment where now a bunch of companies that couldn't get built before can be built. And the models... Uh, whether it's an open source model that you're going to host yourself or you're using the API from one of these companies, those are like car engines, right? Mm -hmm. That you can then take yeah. and go build, put yes, in different yeah. products and build a medicine car. So we were building a medicine car and actually the model that's in the car has been different at different times through even oh, the short cool. number of months that Glass has been open. But so, so you imagine taking a, a base uh, large language model that has really great abilities um, and then making sure that when it is creating a clinical plan, it is doing that with the right context. Mm -hmm. um, and in this sort of situation, you can imagine the right context be like getting the model to read the right textbook article as it's generating your clinical plan. So yeah. we do this processing of clinical problem representations through multiple completions, getting the AI to context that clinicians have created and evaluated and peer reviewed for being the correct evidence-based treatment, looking at the primary literature. We show you the citations that were used when we were developing context for that topic. And then we run tons of one-liners against the topic and look mm. how the model uh, behaves in different scenarios and then make adjustments from there. 
So it, it's um, in our situation, a lot of different things have to come together. One, uh, these breakthroughs in sort of foundational large language models had to come together. And then you also had to be yeah. willing to build an organization like an UpToDate or a Dynamed or those those the the clinical reference organizations of the 80s and 90s that were so important to our work. Mm -hmm. Now that has to exist inside of the same building as AI company. And you put those things together and you can get really excellent clinical AI outputs. That's magical. It's uh, it's beautiful. Kinda, it's it's kind of cool thinking like this is our generation's. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, there was a time when UpToDate didn't exist, right? And that's right. This is our gener. This could be our generation's big thing. That's a that's the hope. Um, I think we've got a good head start on that. I think we have a lot of potential. I think it. You know, when you reach out to me, even um, well, a lot of what I've gotten from uh, healthcare organizations and, and that we talk to about working with is that it really matters that it's us building this version, um, mm -hmm. and I think that's some of the magic of of our AI outputs is it looks like a uh, oh you mean it's like clinicians building it that it's clinicians building mm -hmm. it and and two I would say the clinicians that are building it at glass are some of the like the the heart of medicine medical educators that people are oh, interacting yeah. with so you'll notice that we sponsor the clinical problem solvers and core IM and the curbsiders mm -hmm. and you know Folks at those organizations have come over to Glass, and especially with some of the earliest, um, you know, those medical educators who just love to teach and to help get those best patient outcomes and deploy that evidence-based treatment. Who are so passionate. Um, it's a lot of really passionate internists uh, and internists in training that are behind these great clinical AI outputs, and I think yeah. that strategy is one that has already proved to in the small amount of topics that we've trained to be to really promising and i think once we play this out and start to cover the breadth of uh of some of the bigger clinical reference companies yeah. i think we'll have something really special it's like you're like building a tree you know like maybe you've got tka that branch down but there's other branches too right and exactly I'm curious, what has been some of the responses like, you know, what have the, how, what have users said, people who have been using it like in their practice? Um, well, uh, we have, we've had in the last, um, you know, two months alone had 30,000 people sign up for class. And congratulations. So oh my goodness. It's been really exciting. It, it, there are a lot of folks who are really interested in, in what we're doing. I think. You know, a subset, of course, of any sort of incoming acquisition become those power users. The way folks tend to use Glass is they'll have the EMR open on their main monitor and they'll have Glass open on a second monitor on a laptop or something like that. And then Glass becomes their sort of co-pilot through the day. You might interact with the notebook mm. to pull some of your own resources. You might put a clinical problem representation in class to generate a second opinion on a differential diagnosis or to draft a clinical plan for you. And one of the things that uh, we, we get a tremendous amount of feedback from class users. So for example, folks want to be able to put more information. They want more context. So mm. you can imagine more context when you're generating these AI outputs might include 
the labs descriptions of the imaging uh, reports. Yeah, right? yeah, it yeah. might include the HPI. It might include, let's say somebody's been in the hospital for 60 days. How do you get all of those progress notes as, as context? Oh, so yeah. The ability to have more context when you're developing these. Wow. Um, certainly the ability to, to that helps you uh, work through more difficult cases. Right now, our clinical plans only generate the uh, the plan for one problem, but you can imagine you're admitting somebody to the hospital. They probably have problem. five problems, but yeah. fi five problems. That's a hard AI. That's a hard AI thing to do, right? Cause you have to go get the appropriate context for all of those different problems and bring them into one cohesive, mm -hmm. one, one cohesive plan, the exciting, but difficult problems to solve. And then of course, uh, when it comes at the level of enterprises, there's always conversations around EHR integration, um, yeah. being able to put in PHI, um, all of those various different things. But I, I think, and you'll probably feel this, that nothing that I'm describing is impossible to do. Mm -hmm. It requires time and resources. And so we are moving yeah. towards delivering on those various asks as aggressively as possible. Mm. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that I feel like at least some of our listeners are probably wondering right now. Uh, I have seen on Twitter, you know, recently some doc posts about how he caught his med student using ChatGPT. Uh, but he's like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just like, you don't have to like close it right away. But I feel like people are going to wonder uh, what is the difference between using ChatGPT versus Glass AI um, in, you know, if you're a med student or a resident and you're writing up your note. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. So you could think about what we call glass 2.0 outputs that have that clinician trained context as sort of um I would say that it's sort of like a chat GPT reading a textbook like up to date for you uh, uh -huh. and making a plan using that context. So the context that it's using is clinician created and vetted and peer reviewed and also sort of tested on how the large language model interacts with that context. Um, and so I think what will happen on the other end of this is that glass AI outputs will be much more, uh, will, will have a higher level of specificity mm -hmm. uh, and a much higher level of, of trustworthiness than, uh, than ChatGPT. So, yeah. you know, the, or even ChatGPT using a browsing plugin or something like that. It's very mm -hmm. easy for that to go and grab whatever it can find and bring it back as a resource. In our yeah, situation, probably like WebMD or something. Right, exactly. In our situation, you have clinicians looking at the primary literature, and uh, you even have folks who are in charge of, say, a, a specialty area that are making the definitive decisions about this is how Glass is going to generate a plan for mm -hmm. this. Right, we've looked at the literature. Do we agree that this medication is what our plans to generate? Yeah. And when we do come to that conviction, then we build that into our into our AI. So wow. really, doing clinical AI training in the same way, we're not reinventing we're not reinventing the wheel. I would say that the way it's being done is similar to the way that Harrison's Internal Medicine and other textbooks were written, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the sixties and seventies, right? And then you have these new clinical reference companies like UpToDate. A lot of that clinical um uh, clinical knowledge a process is intact but the work that the team is doing is different because they are doing ai training instead of uh writing a textbook uh so yeah. 
that's that, pretty cool. That is I, that's an interesting. That's fascinating. It's a new job, like uh, the future of med ed. You know, in, instead of writing a textbook because people rarely read textbooks. You know, especially I'm thinking of like med students and my me and my peers. I feel like no one really like read a textbook. If we did, it's very rare. And so maybe this is the future of textbooks is kind of having like a, a like a living. I don't want to say living, but you know what I mean, like a like a living knowledge resource that. Um, yeah. Wow. I think so. I would think about this. I would think about this similar to, okay, to get around a big city like San Francisco or London or New York, it used to be that you needed to be a taxi driver that mm-hmm. memorized this city so well that you could pass tests and you put you in an MRI, your hippocampus or whatever part yeah, of your brain yeah. is bigger, right? Like yeah, that's yeah. how extensive it was, how difficult it was to be able to know where you were going and plot a course to that successfully. Then you have something like Google Maps, oh, sorry, something like MapQuest to come along where you can go home, sit at your computer, print out directions, then you can <laughs> sit, use that to try to get where you want to go. If you mess it yeah. up, it's a big deal. That was an error too. Wow. Yeah. That was an error. And then you have something like Google Maps come along where you can get to places that you wanted to go with the assistance of uh, uh, of technology in a completely different way than was possible before. I think this is really similar. And I think what we're just talking about is something really similar where our ability to interact with information is changing so dramatically that it does empower people in a different way. And so kind of coming back to this med student example, I think what that does mean is that it may be easier for a medical student to come up with a great plan using a clinical AI than they were able Mm -hmm. to before. Now, I think when we do that, we have to all be really cognizant of what large language models are, what their limitations are. And I would say right now, our thesis at Glass is that large language models don't have to be perfect to be incredibly useful. Yes. Um, and the way that you want to interact with them is as assistants on the Isn't level it? of a trainee, right? Yeah. You can ask your medical student on your team, what's your diagnosis? What's your differential? And they might say something that you didn't think of. You can ask your resident or your fellow to draft the note in the plan and then edit and attest it. That's part of what we do anyhow. So Mm -hmm. actually introducing an assistant that is not perfect to help us get work done, right? We interact with, uh, we interact with also other professions, the PAs, NPs. We have these kind of interactions. Um, I think you want to bring the AI in on that level of something that the attending is going to supervise. Now, uh, if you do that, you actually don't require the large language model to be perfect. You require it to be good and to yeah. be excellent. And the better it is, the easier your job is, right? When um, when the creators of uh, GitHub Copilot uh, uh, talk about their AI that drafts code, who can leverage that the best? It's senior developers who review yep. code for a living anyway. So actually, when we get into these conversations around like, ChatGPT is the doctor and you treat it as the doctor and you try to be, it's the doctor alone and you're asking it questions or you're coming to it as a patient. That is a completely different conversation than clinical AI products that enhance a clinician's ability. And replacing clinician judgment with an AI is completely different than 
AI traversal of clinical reference. This is a, those are yeah. we all and augmenting, right? Exactly, and, and and a lot of this gets conflated. Yeah, um, I, I agree. It leads to a lot of, and I understand it. It leads to a lot of anxiety. But I think what we the, our thesis is that AI can assist clinicians, not replace clinicians, and that if it's supervised at the level of a trainee, that we can actually start to implement it uh, to help us very, very quickly. Uh, actually, probably even the base models alone are helpful. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. And I'm curious, I feel like I got to ask this question just because I'm sure someone out there is wondering, uh, have you run into any ethical slash legal issues so far? Well, I think a lot of it is around what we, what we've been talking about. So you can imagine... If let, let's say if you're thinking about yourself as an AI clinical reference, your responsibilities ethically and legally are similar to those of a company up like, to date or like up to date, um, uh, or, or a textbook, and you know, and then on top of that, I think there is a new responsibility that companies like ours have, and you'll see when you use Glass AI, there's both an attestation and there's mm-hmm. kind of yep. extensive disclaimer and description of how this works and the limitations of large language models. We think there's a responsibility to sort of explain those um, and to explain our thesis and how we think this should be used. Uh, so, so that's for sure. The interesting thing is, I think there's an even bigger ethical responsibility to make aggressive uh, development of these products. I think these things are going to save lives. I think yeah, these things definitely. are going to save lives. You know, already a huge, uh, a huge number of folks on the Glass platform are folks outside of the US. And you can imagine a lot of times the conversations, the conversation that you and I are having or that we might have are academic clinicians amongst themselves, right? We have a wonderful uh, uh, sort of academic elder who comes to morning report and tells us all how (laughs) we should have gotten this diagnosis. The rest, not everybody has access to that, right? So think about community hospitals, think about rural hospitals, think about places around the world and what a big difference it is to have an academic diagnostician in your pocket or to have a clinical plan generator in your pocket that is going to create a plan of the caliber that would have been created at UCSF or Stanford or Harvard. This is a big, that is a big gift to, that is a big thing to give. And I think that you could follow and, and, and hope and assume that patient outcomes would be improved to that. So to a certain extent, you asked about the ethical and legal implications, we feel that we have an ethical obligation to uh, sort of uh, develop these products. And then at the same time, make sure that we communicate our thesis and have those kinds of disclaimers and have that large language model supervised so that that as it's being developed, that that's being done safely. Um, the, the, there's a portion of this, which is about regulation. And right now, the FDA regulates certain types of AI related to imaging and AI for diagnostics where a clinician is not in the loop. We sort of sit closer to that textbook piece of things. It is possible that in the future, large language models that do what we do will be regulated. I honestly, as a company, we welcome that because we can cross those, we can sort of cross those uh, barriers and then get to the side where as a company that is a little bit more of a differentiator. So that's not a, that's not really a worry point. And in fact, is something that we welcome uh, as 
that develops and I'm sure that will develop over the, the next year and a half, but the policy always lags behind, uh, lags behind the technology. And so in the meantime, it is on us to make sure that we are being ethically, ethically responsible. The last can thing I'll say you is, a quick, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the last thing I'll say about that is when the AI does get really, really good, um, it's a little bit like throwing a TI-83 into a classroom that was just doing calculus by hand and had no idea <laughs> TI-83 existed. <laughs> now, that has lots of implications for what you can do and how uh, how you test people, right? Like we're talking about this medical student who's now in a completely different world than even you and I were when we're doing our third year. Right, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It has educational implications. I don't know what those will be, but I I think whenever there's a new technology, folks worry about the downsides. But more often what happens is that there are just gigantic upsides. If you think about yeah. the internet uh, coming online, I'm sure there are folks who are worried about how the internet might interface with medicine and say, like, we should just keep doing things the way we've been doing it without the internet. But of course, like web-based uh tools uh both you think about something like pubmed or you think about something like uh these clinical reference companies that we've talked about were multipliers for us in terms of our yeah. ability to to do create clinical care i think this is going to be very similar yeah and i do feel like every generation has its doomsday sayers you know like in the 90s like a lot of people are like oh managed care is going to ruin medicine and then um at least that's what some of like my old mentors have said um but I did want to ask some questions. Oh, actually, sorry. The question that I was going to ask before, I was at um, the AI and medical imaging conference last week, and then there was this interesting ethical talk about, um, you know, should we disclose to patients if we use AI in our product? And I was thinking about what you said about how we should treat glass AI kind of like a trainee or a, like a resident or a med student. And, you know, right now, like med students and residents, when they sign notes, you kind of attest that, like, this is a med student, and then the, the attending test, like, I have read the med student's note, no, 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 this is my note, no, 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 no. Do you think that people should put attestations for when they use Glass AI? The way that we have uh, set our AI up to draft documentation, um, I, I think that leaves it really fully up to the clinician. You know, if you I, ideally, when you're drafting a plan using Class AI, you have a sense as the clinician of what the plan should be. You know what the right plan is. You're not using it to replace your judgment. You're using it to draft documentation that you would have done anyway. So if it does that for you and then you check it and it's exactly what you would have written or you edit it into exactly what you would have written, I still think that's that clinician creating that mm -hmm. documentation. Um, uh, so I think in the in the role that you're using it to augment your knowledge, not replace your knowledge, then it's probably not much more important than you saying, "I reference up to date at the bottom." Yeah, of yeah, yeah. Note, right. Now, yeah. what what is really interesting is that some. Uh, and you'll see this especially among specialists. I know you're trained to be a specialist. When they write their notes, they'll often cite the primary literature mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. is being involved in their care. I actually think that's more important. I think it's more important that we move towards really knowing what the evidence base is mm -hmm. for the thing that we're doing 
and that we are in as close touch with the evidence that is driving our decision than anything else. Um, if the AI is an intermediary in being able to sort of get you there, then I think that can be helpful. But ultimately, this is sort of a meta question that comes between that the society and particularly the relationship between the patients and the providers have to settle. The mm. one I will hope is that I think AI can come to sit in a similar place as clinical reference and that we don't get in the position where an AI is replacing clinician judgment. And if we, if we want the AI to replace clinician judgment, then I think we need to start to think about uh, some of those things. That's just not where, that's not where we are right now. Um, and similar with education, we may get there. We may get there where like the AI is better than most clinicians in generating its plan and the and the clinician wants to defer to the AI, that is a little bit of a different scenario, right? Yeah. Where the AI is not the assistant, but it is sort of the source of source of knowledge and truth and clinical plans and the rest. <laughs> and we just all sort of defer to it because it's it's much better than us. That's a different it's bigger situation. than us all, right? Right. It's a that's, Leviathan. A, that's a different situation. I think we'll have different barriers to cross at that point. That is one of our closing questions that we usually ask is, what do you think the future of AI and medicine will look like in 10 to 20 years? Yeah. Well, coming back to that hierarchy of solving problems and how we, how we, uh, and, and then trying to decide what technologies can be used to solve those problems. I think at class, we hope that we will increase diagnostic accuracy and and patient outcomes worldwide. We hope that we will help to eliminate the documentation burden and to fight uh, combat healthcare provider burnout substantially. I think if we are able to do those things, that would be a big win for us. That would be, that's the, that's sort of the, the, the goal here and various technologies and large language models and large language model products may be involved in delivering that, uh, in terms of how you can imagine achieving those goals. One of the ways that we like to say it is just the clinicians just practice. I think that is what I would have wanted mm -hmm. as a clinician is just to practice. But yeah, you know, this, like our world is so full of massive amounts of duplication and redundancy. I go, yeah. I, I extract data from the EHR onto my piece of paper and then I develop a plan on my piece of paper. Then I report it out to other people who also have redundant plans on their piece. Of yeah. Paper. And we agree on it and we write it in the sign out. Then later I take what's in the sign out and I write it in a note. And then later I try to turn that note into hospital courses and discharge some reason. That's true. Things there like is that. so much like redundant text. Massive yeah. redundancy and massive exactly what you're saying. These are text, these are text-based redundancies. So I think there will hopefully be a future where the clinician can just practice, can just develop the plan, um, maybe develop the plan with AI assistance, uh, diagnose patients with AI assistance. 
I would love for you to be able to go in in the morning, be taking care of a list of 20 patients on the cardiology service, uh, at the, have the AI suggest plans for all of them before you come in because it's already seen in the labs. Um, maybe it catches that you haven't diagnosed something that's already there because it's seeing the data. Um, and then at you execute on the plans. And then at the end of the day, you generate 18 progress notes, one <laughs> HMP and one discharge summary. And you review all of them. And instead of and you review all of them, you edit them and you, sh you, you send them. I think that would be in uh, a really huge change to the way that we, we do this and, and could, yeah. could achieve some of those goals that we have. I, I do have some closing questions that are more so just for fun. Yes. Um, I actually got these from an oncologist, but feel free to answer um, one, all three, or none. Uh, the three questions are, number one, what brings you joy? Number two, what gives your life meaning? And number three, what are your greatest fears? Um, feel free to answer all or none of them. <laughs> oh, these are great. These are great questions. Uh, hmm. Well, okay, in terms of what gives me joy, uh, I would say my sister who is also i have three sis three younger sisters and one wow. of those yes I, I i i'm sort of the older brother and uh one of my sisters is in medicine she's an m1 at university of maryland oh that's yeah. cool uh, and she is also a new mom she has wow. a baby who just turned one uh her and her husband have a baby that just turned one and uh i have gotten so much joy of getting awesome. to sort of uh, spend time with my with my nephew, and then I'm also seeing my sister go through our our <laughs> our educational pathway. Uh, all and you're of building it's... something for her, right? And that is a big motivation, right? Yeah. I don't I don't want my That's sister so cool. to get massively burnt out. And actually, interestingly, I'm also seeing her become a medical student in the age of in the age of ChatGPT, which is very yeah. different than when when you and I went through our medical school. So. That brings me joy. I would say in terms of what gives your life meaning, it's pretty related. I feel like if you do, I did a lot of ICU time at the, mm -hmm. at the Brigham. And I feel like when you spend a lot of time in the ICU and you see people who are very, very sick or at the end of life, you sort of realize that on, on sort of, uh, uh, on, on at the end of life on gravestones no one's writing <laughs> publish publish my paper in nature right publish published great That's paper hilarious. in nature uh had a high impact factor high impact factor google scholar score of this it doesn't say like nobody's nobody's gravestone says like dean of medical education at blah 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 yeah and it doesn't say what i'm doing it doesn't say CEO of this and that, yeah. or founder. Founder. What is? What do those things say? They say, father, husband, husband father, brother, brother yeah. mother. Right. It, it, mm. they, those important roles that we play, friend. And yeah. so I think that actually it's not like a discovery that I have. I think this is a basic human thing that it. They, they, hopefully, you figure out sooner in your life rather than later in your life. Yeah. Th that <laughs> that at the end it kind of comes down to those, and and no matter all of these things that we do, and I I think I try to do work that is deep. This work is so deeply meaningful to me. Um, if I wasn't trying to help create 
good evidence-based treatment plans at glass i'd just be doing it in clinic right so like <laughs> this is the heart yeah. of this is the work yeah. of of my life um just doing it sort of at a different from a different oriented towards in a different way um but i think those foundational roles those human roles that span generations and cultures and lifetimes i think that th th those are the things that give me uh give me meaning greatest mm -hmm. fears I was trying to think of something that won't mess up my next like fundraise. Like the next time I have to raise capital. It's, you don't have to answer it either. Don't worry. Because I actually do have like one final, final question. I know we're a long time. Yeah. Because um, I know you started out as a, as a music major. Uh -huh. Do you have any thought? Do you think you'd ever like kind of go back into music like years down the line? Yeah. Well, that, that's a great question. Also, I'll answer that one because uh, nobody yeah, wants to know ahead. what nobody wants to know yeah. what the what their their CEO's fears are. Yeah, uh, right. Because those are like the risks. Those are the risks mm -hmm. for the market. Um, uh, the the uh, it, music is so important to what I do at Glass right now, um, and my co-founder Graham is also a musician, and wow. uh, and also actually a composer, and I and um, I think with with music is this idea of hearing something in your head and then bringing it to life it, mm. first via the score and then later on via orchestration and actually having that sort of performed and i think company building is very very similar about first having that vision and then writing sort of the plan and then bringing it to life and so um i actually think that that company building is similar to composing and conducting and probably wow, similar yeah. to directing uh in the arts and so i i don't really see what i'm doing right now as different and i certainly can imagine if i were to finish, let's say uh you know retire or something like that that i would go back to some of that some of that work that's awesome well thank you so much derek this is such a fun interview uh and thank you very much it was a big pleasure. Uh, thanks for everything you're doing, and I hope we stay in touch.